Welcome to the Nexus People Podcast, an exploration of the local UX community. Today we are interviewing Dr. Derek Ham, an assistant professor in the College of Design at NC State University. In his work, he continues to investigate virtual and augmented reality technology to expand the possibilities of interaction design. His Oculus Launchpad Mini Interactive VR Experience, I Am a Man, takes audience inside the events leading up to Martin Luther King Jr.'s death. My name is Ben Watson. I'm a computer science professor at NC State. And I'm Derek Ham, an assistant professor of graphic design in the College of Design. Thanks for coming today, Derek. Um, so, I gather from the internet that uh, maybe you came from Hampton? Um, what is Hampton like? Hampton, Virginia, it's, it's an, in, we call it the Tidewater area. Um, yeah. One, it's surrounded by water, like Virginia Beach is not yeah. too far away. But it's an interesting um, small city that's connected to several clusters of cities. So you might, oftentimes when people say, I've never heard of Hampton, I'm like, well, have you heard of Virginia Beach or you heard of Williamsburg, Virginia? Yeah. Um, which are right there, 20 yeah. minutes, 30 minutes, and they've heard of the area. Yeah. And if you push further up the road, you'll get to Richmond. Um, but it's it it was great growing up in Hampton, and I, I, definitely Hampton University is a small college there, historically black college, that I went and did my undergrad there. And that was another thing. I knew I wanted to study design. I, at that time, I, architecture was the major I had chose. I, ch- I was interested in most out of all design fields and did a summer program there before my oh. um, a summer program there, a high school program, very much like our design camp here at NC State. And then I was like, wow, I do. I want to do architecture. I would love to be So that was like the key moment. Yeah. yeah. And it was, I guess you liked your architecture education at Hampton, so... Because you went on to Harvard. I did. Yeah. I did. And I, I think Hampton was a foundation for me. Mm-hmm. And even as I was completing, there was something about it that still felt foundational. It felt strong, but I felt that it was only at the level of, of a strong foundation. I needed to build on it. And I wasn't ready to go into the profession like some of my colleagues did. Um, so I just knew towards, it was a five-year program. So at the end of my fourth, going before my fifth, something in the back of my head said, I, I really want to go to graduate school. So after you graduated from Harvard, uh, there's a lot of stuff going on. <laughs> Harvard, yeah, was, well, Harvard was interesting. Yeah, and I'll just say this. First uh-huh. of all, I thought I was going there to expand my architecture education at Harvard, and that's not what I got. Okay. I got an explosion of design education. Huh. Like, for me, that's why I think things started shifting in my mind. Mm-hmm. Hampton was all about architecture. And even they told you, you know, architecture, you know, be licensed. They never threw the big word design out there. It was mm-hmm. always an architecture as the big umbrella. Mm-hmm. So when I get to Harvard in the College of Design, in the Graduate School of Design, in one semester I walk in their, their big exhibit hall and they have cars. <laughs> on display <laughs> and drawings of engines and things and like they really embraced design I remember taking a, an elective and it was a furniture elective like those were things that I had, was never exposed to um, and undergrad just very focused on architecture so this was the first time I could expand my mm. knowledge of what it meant to design across everything from um, technology built things and machinery all the way down to furniture and architecture and everything and so that 
kind of opened my mind. And I, at, at a certain point, I was wondering, it was like, is it too narrow if I only go into this one little discipline? Because uh-huh. I love this big, the big letter D design, the broad. Mm-hmm. And right. at the time at Harvard, I had helped start a student organization that was going into the community in Roxbury and Dorchester teaching kids about design. So for me, this was a hot topic about mm-hmm. teaching design to young, diverse populations. So this position in Philadelphia was, and at the time, a very obvious extension of my interest. And you taught in many places. And then from there, it was many places. So from there, I went back to Hampton. I taught there for three years in their architecture school. I went to Florida A&M. Between that Hampton and Florida A&M, this is when I got married. And my wife wanted to go to a lands- and to do a landscape program, and I wanted to continue to teach. So we did this strange matrix where she was applying for graduate programs in landscape architecture. I was designing for a teaching positions, and it landed at Florida A and M. And like, well, they're giving you scholarship money, <laughs> and they're giving me tenure track here. Let's yeah. go do it. So those were the schools. Before, once again, you know, life changes, and I started thinking about. At the time I was in Florida a and I was I was at a, at a crossroads where I said, if I'm going to continue to be an architecture faculty member, I have to do one of two things. I should either really think about PhD or think about getting a license. And I was still dabbling in practice at the time. And I really started thinking, I was like, I'm really not passionate PhD about... PhD in architecture is pretty uncommon. Though. It's pretty uncommon. Yeah. So I knew I wasn't really passionate about licensure and being a practitioner and that's when I started going back to that larger thing. Well, why does it have to be architecture? Why can it be broader things in design? So did you go to MIT uh, with an intention to meet George Pliny? or did George study? Yes, yes. So before I applied, I met a professor um, who was there named Larry Sass. And we just had a great conversation. He was like, based upon your interests, what you're talking about, I was dabbling at a, at a time teaching myself to code, right. teaching myself programming, oh. and then wondering about, it. like, where is this, why hasn't architecture really embraced, like, coding and programming as part of their practice? Uh-huh. Um, I was wrestling with these questions, and Larry Sass said, oh, you need to read this book called Shape. You need to read these papers by our, one of our leading faculty members here, George Steine. Steine, excuse me. And when I started reading his stuff, it, it opened up my mind in a way it had never been opened up before. Like, he is, he's very provocative in his, the things he asserts about design, about computing, about, um, about computation and calculation. In your dissertation, you, as I, at a high-level view, seems like what you did at least partly was bring shape grammars into the classroom and how did you use that as a tool in the classroom and I, I have a pretty good understanding of shape grammars I've actually done some in my field one of sort of my home field is computer graphics mm-hmm. so they've branched out <clears throat> I did a lot of procedural geometry and we even worked on generating virtual cities for entertainment applications stuff like that so we learned a lot about, and, and my colleagues uh, have done even more with shape grammars um, to automatically generate buildings of all kinds. Mm-hmm. So I understand the concept. I'm just curious about how, in a concrete fashion and maybe a constructivist fashion, um, you brought that 
what level of classroom were you bringing it to, and yeah. how did did they really get understand the rules well? Absolutely. So even though they weren't using the algebraic expression, saying like x goes to t of x yeah, and yeah, that yeah. type of thing, what they were doing. Um, they were able to set up structures of how to compute by hand. So as a prime example, a big bulk of my study was, was conducted at the Boston Children's Museum okay. where I had an exhibit set up where kids could play on a big light table and play with these, these pieces that were the, the variable, if you will, of a grammar system. Mm-hmm. And then I had these pattern cards. And so kids on their own... Um, there so was a one little instruction that you said... You like, illustrate this can change that. Yes. Okay. How do you take four pieces and make this thing over here? And the thing over here looks nothing like your four individual pieces. Yeah. So just watching kids and seeing what they would do with the pieces... I remember, I used this example in my dissertation, the kid who explained it to his grandmother systematically. Hey, Grandma, take two pieces and make a house. And he flips them and uses a reflection rule. Then he says, now you need two of the houses and then you put them together, which is a double reflection. Mm -hmm. Because he was able to give instructions to another person in a procedural way, he created his rule set. He was able to do that to construct this form where other people without that type of logic would just kind of mess and yander around. So watching kids come up with systems with their hands of rotating, of flipping, and getting more proficient. It was that game that I created that then allowed kids to enter into this understanding of variables, rules, and then systems of design. Do you see, um, I'm just curious, do you see architects actually using these grammars much in practice? They're resistant. Yeah, that's what I thought. And the reason... This is not from a study. This is from my conversation with them. And then what I read about what architects, as they constantly write about their work. Um, architects today, a lot of them are still romantic in their understanding of where design comes from. Romantic and this notion of creativity can't be defined. You just kind of stumble on it. You find it. You sketch. You draw. You're in tune with the site, with the, with the project. And through this intuition, you draw, you create, and you come to some conclusion over time. Right. And some of them find it to be very perverse to, to say, oh, that can all be reduced <laughs> to rules yeah. that can still have some level of um, intuition that you can play with. But you could still break it down to a rule set with variables and structures that gets to a design system. They don't want to embrace that because it's it's frankly not as romantic as the person who pulls out the napkin and yeah. can sketch things and through this kind of artistic exploration, they arrive at their design. Could it be that a lot of designers don't understand that a rule isn't necessarily a straitjacket? Yes. <laughs> that's where they fell that's that's where they fell to see that it's not that. And that's why I use metaphors. I use metaphors to explain how rules work all the time. I use the metaphor of cooking. Mm-hmm. And when I start talking, I was like, well, we can all agree that cooking is a creative art form. They're like, right. yes. I'm like, but we can all agree that a necessary part of cooking are these things called recipes that they use and they tweak. And they're like, yes. I'm like, and you don't have to stick to the recipe. You can tweak off it. You can rift off it. But the recipe always exists for every single cook who makes it. They're like, yes. I'm like, 
okay. The point is, we're missing the recipe building process in architecture. Or I'll use the example of music. Well, they, they, you know, I wouldn't say that they copy, but they are inspired by, maybe is their preferred phrase, all manner of other designs. So they do it without (laughs) (laughs) admitting that they're inspired and use precedent and those things in form. Like, music is the same way. If you look at uh, any jazz uh, musicians there's always going to be some common song, some common structure that they start with, but then they'll go and they'll improvise and they'll improv and do their sets. But then they always come back. So there is always going to be some major song or tune that guides them. And so that's why I use like, that's what rules are. And that's what the grammars are. They're the system that's underneath that helps bring the structure, but you don't have to play it note for note. And that's, you write new rules to explain why you would deviate from there and do that. It's interesting that you use the cooking metaphor because whenever I explain programming to people who aren't in engineering school, that's what I say. Mm -hmm. A program is just a recipe. Mm -hmm. It's a recipe for doing something besides making food. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) It's a great metaphor. It's just like a bunch of steps and you follow them and you get the results. Yes. And we're just telling the computer what is the recipe for making a financial report. Yeah. Right. And I've, I've started using that in my graphic design curriculum and... It's great. I, I think overall, um, I haven't told George this. I would love, I, I haven't seen him in like about two years or so, but I'll, I'll email him every now and then. But I have a firm believer that Shape Grammars works better at graphic design and it's more accepted there than it is in architecture um, for a lot of reasons. Um, I mean, even the idea that it's easy to talk about abstraction and two-dimensional shapes yeah. without fu- without functional spaces that architecture, you know, really deals with in the day. Yeah. So I I found it being very successful in the foundation studios that I teach in graphic, introducing them to this idea of systems like this. And by the time you get to web and CSS and those types of tools, which are coding websites, they're already preconditioned to start thinking about these mm-hmm. systems anyway. It sounds like you're pretty convinced that there needs to be more technology in design education. Yeah. Um, what got you convinced? Uh, well, I mean, it, it, it was an interest of yours. Both were an interest of yours. But well, why do you think it still holds true? You know, I, I'm just fascinated by how technology changes even the way you think. It opens up possibilities, right? Um, just the way you think about the world. So it's, it's, it's a similar with, like, if you think about transportation. If you live in a village and you have no livestock, no horses, nothing like that, your whole concept of getting around the world is by foot. Mm-hmm. You know, you may have boats and canals, but it, you have no concept of being able to be in London tomorrow. All right? Like, once you understand like there's this technology this transportation that allows you to move fast it literally changes the way you think about the world the structure of it Mm -hmm. so that can be reduced down to almost anything once you start integrating what technology does and what it can do for designers it opens up your palette of thinking the the if you were playing a game the amount of possible moves it's like playing chess and if i told you every piece was a pawn you're gonna play a game Differently than if all of a sudden I introduce you these new pieces and new moves, it just opens up your, your, your mind. So that's why I say even for foundational years, getting students adapted into it. And, and, I, and I, it's only a matter of time before for higher ed professors 
that we don't have to do as much in the foundation years. My daughter, who's in the second grade, she's done scratch programming. Mm. So by the time she enters college, we're seeing computer science curriculums being adapted in K-12. We just haven't had the full wave catch up Mm. now that incoming students, freshman year of college, have a proficiency in programming with technology that's akin to their proficiency in mathematics in, in, in English and literature, like that's a common thing now. So I, I hope you're right. I think it should, I, I should think be so. that way. I'm like, she's <laughs> second grade now, so I'm be- banking on a decade now that by that time, that's... It's interesting to me. I mean, I'm, I'm not a designer by training, but um, it seems to me that like if you look back 100 years to the Bauhaus, they were sort of radical in embracing technology then. Right, it's not what we would call technology today, but you know they were working with like engineers and like aircraft companies, and uh, it seems like that was a big part of their impact was that they were saying, "Hey, let's not draw these lines." I mean, they didn't completely succeed, right? But at the same time, they were doing touchy-feeling things, too. That's right. Standing in big circles and chanting and singing songs. So it's interesting that they didn't feel this boundary of either you had to be the artistic touchy-feely over here or the super, you know, techno over here. Like, let's let everyone play together and we don't have that as much. Yeah, and it's interesting to me that somehow we've lost that in design. I mean, we, I, I guess I shouldn't include myself, but it doesn't seem like the same openness that used to be there like because today's technology is yesterday's normal thing I mean it is tomorrow's I I will say there there is a difference in the structure of universities at well that also changes the culture of what design is and what it is not like for instance the semester I taught at RISD it was amazing to be in that culture because everyone's an artist, frankly, at RISD, right? Yeah. Just like being at MIT, like, no one's going to ask you, can you program or not? You know, the majority of people program in some language and, and, and do it. So it's interesting to be in certain communities where you don't have to fight for one or the other because there's a baseline culture. At yeah. RISD, the baseline culture were, were artists. So for me to start talking about programming coding, there was never a threat of, you're doing this and losing the art side. No, we are an art school or a design school. So that's always going to be there. The same thing why the arts and design can be done really well at MIT because no one's going to say, oh, you're getting too touchy-feely. No, at the baseline, it's still MIT. There's always going to be this kind of technology um, Mm -hmm. backbone. But for other schools that don't have that firm kind of place in the world, it seems like there's kind of, like even here at State, it seems like there's camps. They're more general institutions. Mm-hmm. Like MIT is very engineering focused, mm-hmm. RISD very arts focused. Mm-hmm. Might be true. So they feel like they define their identity by being different from those guys, right? Um, and so when they jump into those other domains, they do it already. It's like they're programmers from an artist point of view, or at MIT they're artists from an engineering point of view. So was VR just sort of? The next thing, the next piece of technology. That, that was serendipitous. Mm. I, while I was at MIT, I um, worked with a professor named um, Takahiko Nagakura. 
and he was in the computation group as well, but he focused on a lot of visualization tools. I took his course, I TA'd him for him for a couple of years. Cool. I was a part of a research group with him that went to Northern Italy. At the time, this is interesting, I was obsessed with 3D <laughs> before the Oculus Rift was released. So I was doing these renderings with the old, I guess, red, blue, um, yeah. <laughs> I was rendering out uh, stereo. stereo. You were yes. interested in 3D stereo. I was interested in 3D stereo. So I was using Maya and Max to render out with stereo rendering so I could check it out and see that. I remember I had bought a Samsung. I'd saved money to buy a Samsung 3D TV, which, you know, that was a disaster. That never lasted. <laughs> but it was still kind of like pushing for understanding yeah. the technology of 3D. Um, and, and I was obsessed and everything 3D was in it. And before I saw the, um, the Oculus Rift, I started reading about the early prototypes for VR hmm. and these big bulky things people were putting on and moving around. And of course, cave technology of projections. All that was great. It just seemed inaccessible. Well, it was for a long time. When the Oculus it was, Rift it was a wave. first came out, it was it's the price point and accessibility that was like, that's $500. I did that, you know, and I was with a lab, and I was fortunate enough to be at a lab that said, hey, can we get you a piece of technology that you might need? I'm like, I need an Oculus Rift, <laughs> and they were able to get it for me, mm-hmm. and I was hooked. I remember that first, I remember that first day I put that headset on, I booted it up. It was magic. I was just like, I'm in another world, um, and the, for me, the challenge was that had nothing to do with my dissertation. So you had to finish that. I had to finish that, but I was so excited about VR. So I was doing things parallel. I was working with Takahiko, um, and I did a, 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 a Palladian Villa. Yeah. We recreated it, mm-hmm. and I had a VR headset at the time. This is in 2014, mm-hmm. and this was cutting edge. Like This is the first Oculus Rift was out, and we had this on. And I had a historian there. He's like, this is just like the real thing. So I was really excited doing those side projects as I was still doing my work. And just have keeping ahead of the pulse of where VR is with each headset that's come out. And, of course, new tools and the rest has been history. Mm-hmm. I was teaching about VR in my class last semester. And um, I didn't have a lot of time because it was part of a larger course on mobile devices. And VR is largely mobile at this point. But um, I was, most of them were surprised to learn that you could buy a $200 VR headset in 1984 from Nintendo. <laughs> it didn't succeed because it wasn't, you know, it was pretty primitive even by those standards. Yeah. Sega had one a year earlier that they demoed at CES that was full color. But um, there was a lot of concern about its impact on users and that was about um, the time when um, there were all these uh, seizures that were happening because of leaky mm-hmm. computer graphics and so they got nervous and they killed it even uh, even though they, you can still find the YouTube videos it's funny you mention that because mm-hmm. I, I haven't tracked down what the game was but I had a game a Nintendo in the late 80s that used chroma for 3d and I don't remember the name of it, but I remember putting on my little red was, blue glasses. It, that was and, probably what it was. And it was playing, and it was just like, this is great. It's 3D on my screen, but there weren't that many titles advanced. It yeah. probably had to do with the same thing of, I remember taking them off, and of course, your eyes are all like yeah. screwy. But 
Yeah, it's... But it's here now. It's so here to stay. You're right? still... Well, we'll see. I mean, I've been through I'm, two I'm, waves. I'm optimistic now. So what do you think... Why do you think it will last this time? Um, one... Fidelity, the resolution is just way like it's that's not a minor thing, like for the consumer. Like, I think the hobbyist, the enthusiast can see something that's very low level and get excited about it. But mm-hmm. today, we need something of a higher quality for the consumer mm-hmm. to really get behind. So, because of that, the $200 Oculus Go, which is the latest headset that just came out from mm-hmm. them, um, I have it, I put it on, I'm like, yes, it's $200. The, the only thing we have to get over now is what's, you know, not technical term, the dork factor, right? There's still people who claim it doesn't look good, it's not cool or whatever, it's not fashionable. That's only a matter of time before that gets cut down because they'll get slimmer, thinner, and everything. Mm-hmm. And I think having a cousin, augmented reality, in the game helps a lot because yeah. the two can fuel each other. So it's like VR and AR sandwiched together. So eventually they'll be the same thing. But having, it's not a one-trick pony anymore. It's like there's multiple applications. There's this AR, which is not quite VR, but they're very similar. And I think the push together is something, it's it's definitely a, a brand new wave, not like 3D TVs right? yeah. or Google Glass. I'm much more <laughs> optimistic about AR than VR itself. Um, I'm, for example, pretty skeptical of the Facebook's excitement about VR as a communication medium mm-hmm. um, because I feel like there's nothing wrong with video. We could even make video that was 3D. Well, so, uh, here's here's my my challenge with that. Uh-huh. With video, there's only you and me. There's no other third-party content. So with VR and social, you can have third-party content. So for instance, if we want to talk about some device or some object... Mm-hmm. Or look at a screen together. That falls apart when you're like, oh, hold on, let me share my screen with you. All right, I have to choose. It's like, oh, show me your screen or show me, or you have to have some really large monitor set up so I can see the screen you're sharing or the thing. So what Facebook should, I, from my opinion, it's not just the fact that we could socialize you and me together. It's you, me, and this other variable. Whether the variable is a space that we're mm-hmm. both in or whether it's an object that we can co-look at, or it's that third thing that video can't provide because it's that one-to-one channel. Mm -hmm. So that's for me, is like the big difference between it opening it up so that now we could all be together, if you want to talk about design, talk about a physical thing, or play a game together and and do those, uh, that spatial connection. Um, Yeah, I guess it it all depends on what what is the difference between virtual and augmented reality. Mm So the idea of having to reproduce some facsimile of yourself mm-hmm. doesn't strike me as the best first step in communication. Right. They, they, they were already, there's been <laughs> pushback against, I yeah. don't know uh, if you saw what came out of the Facebook, their last developers conference, they, they prototype a technique where you have a CGI avatar of yourself, it's very photorealistic, and then the sensors on the headset are pulling from your, your mouth facial expression mm-hmm. and eyes so that you get a digital, fully animated representation of yourself talking to us. That's just kind of you in your perfect form avatar speaking. And no, I mean, you're right. At a certain time, it's like, that's going to be weird. You look exactly the same 
every single <laughs> day, right? There's no kind of like, oh, you have a little bit more scruff and here I, or I, that here. I have a feeling like if we keep pursuing that goal, we'll, we'll begin approaching the Uncanny Valley and it will be disturbing, right? So I agree with you that, you know, an enriched form of communication would be great. The ability to discuss an object, the ability to point at things. But I don't see any technical reason that we can't put ourselves, video captures of ourselves, into those. Sure. Or put those things around Sure, us. sure. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, I, I agree that the, the line will be blurred between augment yeah. and virtual at some point. It's, it's a matter of time. So, you've made this awesome VR piece. <laughs> what is your next thing? Um... Several. There's there's several projects in the works, but the one I would talk most publicly about is a, a piece around women's suffrage. Okay. And I think there are components to I'm a Man that are could easily translate to another storyline that's very similar. It's like instead of having the hands of a black person, you can have the hands of a woman. And I want to, um, I was talking to a friend in the video game industry, he was explaining that you want to do a second project that's a variation of the first one, because no one makes money on the first one. And <laughs> not that I'm doing this to make money, right? right. It's just like, if you already have a system, or at, like, Assassin's, like, Assassin's Creed 1, and eh, it doesn't make money. But the two and the third one, because you're building off of the same system, you could do it faster and more efficient. So I was like, wow, yeah, I, understand. I have a system now of telling stories, of using history, of using photos, of doing it. Don't have to reinvent the wheel of at least another project that still has emotion and heart to it. Mm-hmm. Bring on a different type of writer to write a different script. All the environments change, but the pacing and the mechanism could be exactly the same to tell a story. And so I'm, I have a bunch of students who are have um, partnered with me this summer to start at least prototyping the story, thinking about it, and if all goes well, this would be something that would be in production um, next summer, 2019, using a year to kind of build the baseline, build Mm -hmm. this. Um, This is a different project because I need a writer, and with I'm a Man, I had the testimony. I don't think we have anyone from 1918 still alive that can get on. <laughs> Get on audio tape here Probably talking not. about it. <laughs> if they were alive, then they were too young. So yeah, <laughs> so it's it, it's. I think it's a project that's also timely for me. I'm a man is a timely piece because it deals with issues that we're still dealing with today, um, with equality, ethnic, um, and the problem of uh, that we're facing with um, underrepresented minorities in the U.S. And then women suffered is is a, is, a, is the same narrative of like okay this is what happened then what are we dealing with now with women's issues and so I think once again there's a connection that would resonate with people today so I want to give that a spin um, with a lot of collaboration and, and I really stress that I have um, women developers in the room I have a really strong team already that are coming there because I know I will have biases in trying to tell a story that way yeah I would I would. <laughs> feel uncomfortable trying to yeah. tell a story from a woman's yeah. perspective. So they're very enthusiastic, <laughs> and um, uh-huh. we'll see where this leads. Yeah. So it sounds like you're convinced that VR is a good way to, to let people experience these kind of first-person stories. Yes, yeah. I, I think so. I mean, at the same time, so I'm also expanding because I still want to keep producing 
but now I'm starting to work with people as well saying, okay, now how do we use this to then collect data on the actual user? Because we want to see if it does it actually change them. Um, I've, I'm talking with people about using I'm a man in a classroom so I can see what teachers would do with them. What kind of conversations do you have with your kids after a VR experience as opposed to them just reading a chapter in a history book or watching a documentary? Are they more engaged? Do they ask more poignant questions? What are, what are the differences that that might bring? So I'm, I'm, I'm reaching out to just different individuals and organizations. They may want to use VR in a way that we could collect some type of information on the actual users. Mm-hmm. And definitely the Civil Rights Museum that it will end up in as a, a part of an exhibit at some point in the future is interested in that as well. Um, well, I usually like to finish um, by asking everybody, uh, all the people I interview for sort of the blessing they give their graduates. So if you have like a master's student that is about to leave your door for the last time, what uh, sort of pearl of wisdom might you give them on their way out? I, I always tell them you have to carve your own niche in the world. Yeah. You have to make your own path and not follow under any, don't conform to what you've seen as examples, you definitely use those things, but you have to like make your own stride forward, mm-hmm. you know, and, and be brave about it to say, you know, what do you want to do to move forward and just make your path, make your own path and, be, and take the steps you need to do that. And it's something I've even had to tell myself where sometimes I feel like, oh, fall after the footsteps of my PhD advisor, you know, right. like, wait, you have to pause and say, wait a second, I'm a unique individual, just like he was probably a unique individual too, is it? So it's sometimes easy to fall under either a path from your parents or your advisor or your academic environment or whatever, you know, you branch out, you create your own path, and sometimes that means creating new territory, new inventions, new ways of thinking, and that's that's what I tell them, yeah, that's all I tell them. You've been listening to the Nexus People Podcast. To learn more, go to our website at nexus.ncsu.edu. That's nexux.ncsu.edu. You can learn more there about our monthly meetups. We're also on Twitter at nexus underscore USA. Nexus are sponsored by Eastman Chemical, Nexi Nexus, and KPIT. This podcast was produced by Sha Liao. Our music was composed and performed by Ricky Harper. Thanks for listening.